Europe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Dante Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never won. In over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? Welcome back to Off the Podium. I am Colin Hilding, coming to you all the way live from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, uh, the home country of a very special guest we're going to have on today. And uh, in case people haven't tuned in before now, we had a great time covering the Olympics during Rio, and we're in the process right now of getting a bunch of interviews out there for you with uh, some of these athletes from Rio. Some athletes that weren't in Rio, but other Olympians, and just getting an opportunity to talk about people, about these sports, and... uh, for anybody who isn't familiar with Evan Dunphy, who's our guest today, he has one of the most interesting stories of anybody who is in Rio, at least from the Canadian athletes. And even if you're not Canadian, I mean, you can't help but deny it's such a great story. He was in the race walking event, in the 50K race walk, which was held on one of the last days of competition. And I just remember waking up in the morning and seeing the highlights of this and it had already made the news and for race walking to make the news I knew something was up and I'm trying to watch this and find out and you see there's one moment during the race where Evan gets bumped by one of the other competitors and anybody who knows and the track and field events like the slightest bit of touch sometimes you know that means you're disqualified and basically what happens for people before we go into the interview we will talk about it a bit but just to give a bit of context basically what happens is there's this back and forth between him being awarded the bronze being taken away and he goes into detail on that and uh, it really is a very interesting interview that we're about to give you here uh, Evan's talking to us about a lot of things including what he's doing in Australia which uh, means guaranteed Ben and Jared are going to listen to this interview if nobody else uh, and uh, we talked to him about the study that he's part of uh, some really interesting stuff there uh, a lot of uh, questions that I always had about Olympic athletes and you know how they get into the sport and uh, how their training's funded. I mean, we have a great conversation here and we're happy to bring it to you. So without further ado, here's our interview with Canadian Olympian from Rio, Evan Dunphy. And welcome back to Off the Podium for another one of our interviews with uh, Rio athletes, all these athletes that we're watching throughout the summer and now we're bringing you all these interviews where you get to hear from them in person and uh, I'm very pleased to be bringing the first Canadian interview that we have here. Um, Unusually enough it's a Canadian who's uh, not coming to us from Canada today but still coming from Australia like uh, most of our guests and our other two co-hosts. Today we're joined by Evan Dunphy who came in fourth place in the 50k race walk in Rio so thanks for joining us today Evan. Yeah my pleasure happy to be on. So first, before we even get into you know what everything happened in Rio and what you're up to now, you have to tell us what you're actually doing in Australia right now. I know our co-hosts Jared and Ben; they're gonna love to hear just what you're doing down there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, we're I'm in I'm based in Canberra right now, so you know not the most uh, exciting of places to be in Australia, but um, we've been training here at the AIS uh, for the last 
about five weeks now, um, and we're part of a, a big uh, breakthrough diet study. So we're looking at the effects of uh, high-fat diets on uh, elite endurance athletes. Mm-hmm. And so we got, there's about 28, 29 athletes from all over the globe. Uh, we got guys from the U.S., Canada, Hungary, Lithuania, Poland, Japan, South Africa, uh, Chile. You know, you, we got half, a, you know, we got a dozen countries represented here on this study of, of guys that were, guys and girls that were, uh, a lot of them were in Rio competing and uh, have come together for, for this training camp and to do this, this uh, research. So it's a, it's pretty cool. We're just wrapping up now, so we're, we're starting. We're opening up our season in Adelaide next week, and we've had a solid four weeks of all training together, and, and excited to see what we can do uh, in the first race of the year. Is uh, this your first time where you've been training in Australia? So this is actually so the, the study we're a part of is uh, it's a follow up study from last year. So I was, I was here last year for four months, uh, leading into Rio uh, in, no, in November. I uh, I tried out the high fat diet for the first time. Um, Three weeks, you know, every every ounce of food you eat is weighed and accounted for, and uh, and monitored by an army of nutritionists and, and staff that that help out with this sort of study. And, and we had some great success um, last year coming off the diet and going back onto carbohydrates and and racing there. And so, uh, yeah, after the four months, just got really fit and and was more than happy to come back again this year uh, to take part again. It's actually the fourth time in the last five years I've been down to Canberra to train. Oh, uh, wow. I just keep coming back here to avoid to avoid the Canadian winter. Yeah. Well, especially, I mean, I'm sure you're from BC, so I'm, I'm sure you're keeping up with what's going on in BC right now. I mean, I'm in Winnipeg, and right now the BC winter is blowing us away. Like, we're looking really mild compared to them right now. <laughs> yeah, I think we're finally starting to gain some... Uh, some reasonable expectation of being allowed to complain yeah. <laughs> uh, with the rest of Canada. Uh, my my aunt is actually, well, she's originally from Winnipeg, but uh, she moved to Abbotsford. And I remember my mom used to always laugh, you know, when she moved to Abbotsford because she'd say, uh, yeah, I had to shovel my driveway today or I was wearing gloves today. And, you know, coming from Winnipeg, I mean, that's like, <laughs> okay, that's that's basically shorts weather for us. Um, but uh, you said you've been down there for five weeks now. So uh, once uh, this happens and the season's over, do you still go back to BC? Is that where you live most of the time? Yeah, so uh, so ba- still based uh, in Richmond there, just uh, south of Vancouver, and we'll go home and uh, set up shop there for for most of the year. Last year, with being Olympic year, we were we were all over the place. We did camps, uh, you know, uh, apart from the four months I did in Australia, I was only home from uh, from November till Rio last year. I was only home for ten weeks total. Oh wow! We were just sort of traveling around, doing different training camps with uh, different groups of guys and uh, different altitude camps and stuff like that. So we were in Flag Bath. Uh, Arizona for a month and St. Martin, Switzerland for a month before the game. So uh, this year is a little bit more tame when I come home. I'll be, I'll be based back in Vancouver a little bit more this year, which will be nice to uh, have a yeah, I, glimmer of a life or home life as well. <laughs> I know with this diet thing, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because that's one of the first things that came to my attention. You know, I think it was probably about a month or so ago, read an article on you online where it was talking about this and it's very similar to something that my wife, I don't know if it is the same thing, correct me if I'm wrong, but she calls it keto. Is that the same thing? It is? Yes, yeah, precisely. Okay. Yeah, because as I kept telling her, you know, what my plans were for the weekend, I'm like, oh, I got a couple of interviews. And, and then she's like, when are you doing the one with the keto guy? Like, she was all excited about <laughs> to hear about this. She's been telling me this for the longest time because uh, I got into 
uh, running, not nearly at like the 50k level where you're <laughs> you're walking more than uh, I could walk, you know, even at a slow pace. But I got into running just like 10ks and half marathons maybe about a year and a half ago. And I found it for the longest time so hard to do without carbs. And here you are and you're doing it with, you know, just all fat for the most part, high fat. And she's been trying to sell me this thing. You know, a lot of athletes do it. I'm like, I haven't heard of one. Is, is it a huge <laughs> transition to make? It, it, it is. And it, it's, it's funny. So there's basically been uh, the idea of high fat diets has been around for a long time. And there was a study in 1983 um, by a guy, uh, uh, Finney, and he had five subjects. And he basically, the results of that study basically said that going on a high fat diet is no worse than being on carbs. And that was kind of the end of the story for a number of years. And then in the last couple of years, we've seen this proliferation of, of anecdotal evidence of athletes going on to the high-fat diet and, and um, having quite some success. Um, unfortunately, there's not been much done with like elite athletes. And so last year, uh, Louise Burke, who's the head researcher here um, heading up our study, um, she's one of the top nutri- sports nutritionists in the world. And she just thought, you know what, let's, find, let's get a group together of actual elite athletes. Let's, let's see what we can actually do and, and put something together. So you know, last year, the, the study we did was the first of its kind, and it was absolutely groundbreaking in, in terms of what we were able to accomplish. Um, you know, having 20-something athletes where literally every single gram of food for three weeks is weighed out. Um, it was it, it just it's fascinating what they've been able to accomplish and the results we got from that study last year were, were pretty groundbreaking. It basically showed that the high fat diet for athletes of, of our level um, just did not provide an advantage. Uh, the idea around the high fat diet is that you have so many more uh, calories worth of fat in your body. Um, you know, even someone like me who's, who's quite lean still has thousands and thousands and thousands of calories uh, mm-hmm. worth of fat that, that I could potentially access to use as energy. Whereas with carbs, you have a very limited store, which is why you get that uh, in the marathon, people hitting the wall because they just run out of fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of going on the high-fat diet is to, ha- is to force your body to adapt and, and become better at or quicker at utilizing that fat as a fuel because it takes a little, it's a little bit slower of a process. And the idea being if you can adapt enough that you can then get the energy from fat just as quickly as you do from carbs, and we saw that it just simply wasn't the case last year. We just, at the intensities with which we raced, uh, the, how quickly we need the energy, mm-hmm. even though we were adapted to, the, to utilizing fat as a fuel, we couldn't still get that energy fast enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was really interesting was uh, about 10 days after coming back onto a high-carb diet, um, we raced, uh, it was either the 50K Australian National Championships or the 20K National Championships and a lot of the guys that were on the high fat diet 10 days later raced uh, raced astonishingly well um, I I broke the national record at the time last year by over 4 minutes in this race in the 50K and um, and so it gave us this idea of like okay well what happens you know what, what about using the high fat diet a high fat diet in terms of similar to altitude training where you know, you, you have a baseline, you go up to altitude, you're slower because the conditions are harder, but when you come back down to sea level, you now have these adaptations that make you better at sea level. Mm-hmm. And so the study that we're a part of this year has been looking at that. So once we've come back onto a high-carb diet, we're still being monitored. There's still 
tracking some of our blood values and, and doing different testing sessions um, to look and see if, if those adaptations that we gain while on fat then uh, can be utilized once we're back on carbs and sort of get the best of both worlds. Uh, so it's really fascinating research, and it could really change the, change the game in sports nutrition for uh, how we prescribe different diets, and the idea of periodizing different diets over a, over a training block would be you know, quite groundbreaking. Yeah, and I know my wife got into it. It was more for a weight loss thing, and, you know, it wasn't, uh, I mean, she's at the point now where she she had a baby nine months ago, and she's getting back to the gym now, um, and she was on this for the last couple of months, and people used to always make fun of her calling it like the I can't believe it's not butter diet, because sometimes it would be like, you know, a scoop of butter with something, or, or you know, whipped cream, or, uh, I mean, a lot of bacon and stuff like that. I mean, what's the typical uh, meal plan that you have, like, during a study like this that you go through for, like, yeah, breakfast it, and dinner? It's, absolutely, it's astonishing, because, so the diet, the, the makeup of the diet is about 80% fat, um, 15% protein. Uh, and then under 5% of your calories coming through carbs. So it's about, we were getting less than 40 grams a day of carbs, which is the equivalent of about a piece of white bread um, with you know, honey on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, that's spread out over, every everything has one or two grams of carbs in it. So yeah. you just sort of accumulate over the day. But um, that's the problem, I think, with, I could never do something like this on my own. Um, just how... Uh, how technical it is and how hard it is to keep your carbohydrates that low um, and it's a it's you know pretty low in protein as well people people sort of just think oh well you're just eating bacon all the time but uh, the problem <laughs> with protein is that the amino acids can get then converted into glucose and then used as as carbohydrates would be used mm-hmm. so you have to really keep the, the protein down as well so it becomes really tricky and, and you know there were days where you're just literally after a meal just go okay well your fat's been a bit lower today here's Here's two little sachets of butter, and you just go put them in the microwave. Put them in the microwave, heat them up, and then take a shot of butter. Like, yeah, it was, it's quite ridiculous. But um, little like meals, you know, we had like a zucchini pasta with like a really fatty carbonara sauce. Those mm-hmm. the zucchini noodles, and you know, so it, you get really creative. And and some of the food was was really quite good. Um, but it's not. It's something I could never endeavor to do on my own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I mean, you're doing these huge endurance races, and have you actually done any of them? Like you said, you did the study last year, but have you completed any races where you were eating just the fat going in? Like, how how do they actually monitor what the difference was? Did you do like a, you know a, a trial, like a 25 or a 50k when you're doing it, and another one when you started eating the carbs again? Yeah, so we had um, we had a few testing testing sessions. So one of our testing blocks was a, a 10k. So we did a 10k time trial. Um, race before the diet started and we did another one at the end of the three weeks uh, had to do 10k because of uh, just fitting it into the proper training a proper training year and uh, you can't really have guys do 20, 220ks on on the front and back end of a hard three week training block mm-hmm. um, the 10k was sort of the, the the sacrifice we had to make in terms of that in terms of actually getting a real world performance um, that people would try their hardest on um, so the, the both times that I've done the high fat diet um, I've been slower uh, on the post test for the 10k time trial despite having had three really good weeks of training mm-hmm. um, so and it, it you know it wasn't significantly slower it was it was always sort of a little bit slower but the real telling thing was we had this other test it was a 25k uh, walk at or around our 50k pace 
and every uh, five kilometers we would come in and do a kilometer on the treadmill with the uh, the gas exchange mask, so they'd measure uh, our oxygen use um, and how much you know how much oxygen we're using uh, for a kilometer, and then we'd go back out and do another five k and then come back in. And um, the data they got through that was fascinating. It, it just basically showed that. You know, while we were able to still maintain our 50k race pace for that whole 25k, it was costing us significantly more um, in oxygen, and um, it just wasn't. There was no advantage to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that was that was probably the most telling test that we did. Um, and then this year we've done the same thing. So we did that 25k tempo uh, beforehand. We did one on the fat diet, and then at the end of that week we did one where the first time we got carbs was the morning of the test. So we hadn't had, you know, hadn't had a carbohydrate meal in three and a half weeks. And then we got raisin toast for breakfast and jam and stuff and then went and did a 25K, like right, right out, you know, two hours after that. And so that was really interesting to see. You know, I basically went immediately, once I got those first set of carbs, went right back to where I started on the pre-test. Oh, wow. How does your stomach like feel after being off of it? Undid. Like when you've been it off of it? Yeah, it was long. a little bit tricky. It, it was a little bit tricky. A lot of us were sort of having just feeling a little bit, a little bit off, and, and just that something. Our body sort of was going, "Oh, what? This is different. What is? What is this?" Um, and then again, we did a week back after carbs. We did another twenty-five k session, and and pretty much across the board. Um, I don't know what the VO two data was, the, the oxygen uptake data was, but. In terms of how fast people went and how good people were feeling, guys were just flying um, this last test. Like it was, it was pretty cool to see how uh, how fast how fast everyone was going. So it, it bodes well for Adelaide next week, that's for sure. Even just when you say like you know twenty five k just in these these tests or whatever, I mean that just seems insane to me. It's funny because everybody I know thinks that I'm insane for the amount of walking I do or running and everything. I mean, I basically will walk to work, which is about 10 kilometers, and then I'll walk home after work, which is 10 kilometers on the way home. And people think that I'm insane for doing this. And here, just as like a sport and competitively, you're doing like twice the amount of that. I mean, I'm not even sure, like, how does somebody actually get into a sport like this? Because it's not like race walking is something that you you have in in track and field in school, you know? Uh, How does somebody actually get into this sport? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to just opportunity. Um, So in British Columbia, we're very lucky that it is part of our uh, junior development program in track and field, and it's part of our high school program. Um, So there's lots of opportunity to be exposed to it. Uh, you know, I, I grew up running track um, from the time I was nine years old, and um, I actually started race walking when I was eleven. Um, oh wow! It I was sort of it was born out of my my brother had had his appendix taken out. His high school track coach thought, "Well, there's this race walking thing. Why don't you give that a try while your stitches heal? Because it might not tug on your abdomen as much." Mm-hmm. And he was kind of like, "Okay, like, yeah, that, that's a good way to like maintain my fitness." And so he did it. He won a few races because. Again, not many people are, are doing it. And as the younger brother, I kind of naively thought, well, if he can do it, it can't be very hard. <laughs> so signed myself up for, for a race and showed up. And I still remember my first race. It was a, when you're a kid, it's, it's not the 20 and 50K distances. It's a 800-meter race back then. And mm-hmm. I was uh, on the start line, and there's a kid next to me. who He's that kid that wins all the races. And he looks at me and says, oh, you're, you know, you're new. And 
what, what are you hoping to do? And I was like, oh, I don't know, like five minutes is a round number. I'd, I'd like to break five minutes. He sort of looked at me and was like, oh, you'll never do that on your first try. And I, I beat that kid and I walked 457. I won the race. And I was, that was, I was hooked. Basically from that moment on, I was like, I'm, this is, this is my new event. I'm going to keep doing this. When did it actually become an Olympic sport? Because it's not something that you get a lot of coverage of. I mean, it's something you tune into on the final days of the Olympics. You know, obviously there was a lot of coverage this time in Canada, but I don't even know if many people are aware that it is an Olympic sport. When did it start? Well, it's been part of the track and field program for a long time. So back in like 19, uh, 1908, I believe, it was actually, so the old the old decathlon, uh, so the, the old 10 eventer, um, used to actually end with a 1,500-meter race walk. So you have, you know, you have those big, you think of someone like Ashton Eaton mm-hmm. goes out and does his high jump and his javelin and his long jump. And, and back in the day, he would have ended that with a 1,500-meter race walk. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it was, it was its first Olympics was, uh, yeah, 1904 as part of, the, part of the all-arounder, which was sort of what became before the decathlon. The and then in 1908, they had a 1,500-meter and a 3,000-meter sort of individual race walk. And it's basically been in every Olympics for men since uh, since 1908 except for I think 1924 so it's been around it's one of the you know one of the stock standard events that's been around forever uh, it just yeah you're right in Canada especially it's just never had the exposure uh, we actually had an Olympic medal uh, from 1992 by Guillaume Leblanc mm-hmm. in the men's 20k event but um, and so it, the Quebec tradition there is quite the big tradition uh, in Quebec uh, of race walking and so there uh, guys like Guillaume LeBlanc, Francois Lapointe, uh, Marcel Jobin, they're all sort of got for athletics fans or sports fans that grew up uh, 80s and 90s are sort of household names in Quebec. They're, they were well, well-known well athletes back then, but we just never had the proliferation across the rest of Canada um, really until till we're just starting to see it now a bit in B.C., and when you were a kid, you know, and you started getting into this as your sport, were you aware that it was in the Olympics? Was this the event you'd watch and, like, one day I'm going to be an Olympian and I'm going to be a bronze medalist or a silver medalist in this event? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think back to, you know, I, I kept running, like, race, like race walking and running were sort of went hand in hand, and, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was a Canadian kid, I played hockey as well, and... Um, I, I think my first inclination I want to go to the Olympics was uh, after watching Sydney um, in 2000. So I would have been 10 years old. Uh, I remember doing a school project. It was one of those ones where you write down what you want to be when you grow up. And I said I want to be an Olympian. Mm-hmm. And the teacher was sort of like, "Oh, that's, you know, that's really great, but like, do you want to write something else down as well?" And I was like, "No, I'm good. <laughs> like, this is, this is, this is, I'm going to stick with this." And um, you know, it was always something that was in the back of my head as something that I wanted to, to do uh, and achieve in my life. And um, Real, I guess it wasn't really until I was 18 or 19 and, and got to university that I really started to understand uh, what that meant and, and what it was going to take to get there. And, and really, you know, it went from being sort of a pipe dream to an actual goal with a, a, a plan on how I was going to get there. See, the thing that's always been most fascinating for me is because there's so many Olympic sports and it's not like you know hockey where people are like I'm going to make a career out of this I mean most of these people are probably doing it just for the love of the sport at what point does somebody even realize okay I have a shot at making the Olympics and this is something that I could do long term yeah it's funny I, I mean one of the things I love about um, 
the race walking community and and you see it in stuff like the study I'm here like yeah how, where in what other event would you get 29 athletes from every continent agree to be poked and prodded for three weeks and on a you know some guys on a diet that 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 they know might not help them at all but they're willing to do it because it's going to be a good training camp and you're going to meet a bunch of you know you're going to have it's going to be warm and and you know all these other reasons but like to actually sacrifice that time and come and train with everyone like it's such a cool community and i think part of that is because of what you said you know nobody grows up thinking they're going to make a career out of this it's, mm. it's just a group of it's a group of guys that you know guys and girls that think that they have some sort of potential and they want to you know pursue that pursue that and see how far they can get you know nobody's in race walking for fame and glory um, and I think it makes it I think it makes a really interesting subset of people that you get to meet and compete against and you know everyone's just sort of there to, to reach their own personal potential it's funny you said like uh, it, I mean we both said it's not really like a well-known sport here in Canada but the most interesting thing is that coming out of Rio especially here in Canada and we kind of joked on this show when we were doing our preview episodes that I wasn't going to have a lot to talk about when it came to Canada. It was going to be a lot of Australian. And I mean, Canada just blew everything away. But you didn't win the medal in Rio. And yet somehow, I think, maybe next to only Penny Alexiak and Andre de Grasse, you came out of it with more media coverage than anybody of the Canadian medalists in Rio. I mean, was it weird for you to see so much publicity coming out of this and yet not have won the medal? It, it was... It was incredibly strange for me um, I still you know that the afternoon of the race um, I didn't really I hadn't grasped grasped what had really happened yet and, and or the, the the levity and you know I didn't even know that CBC had shown the race I I had hoped that they would be playing it online and, and that my I had said I'd, the night before the race I'd written on my Facebook to my friends and family like I think it was, it was a 4 a.m. start back in Vancouver, and I said, look, you know, I don't expect you guys to wake up at 4 and watch my whole race. Wake up at 6, and if I'm still, like, in camera shot, you know, <laughs> maybe watch for a little bit. Like, that was, and then, you know, that was to my family and friends. Those were the expectations. So uh, it wasn't really until I got back into the village that evening of the race and, and got a phone call from our communications manager at Athletics Canada, and he sort of said, look, like, you really need to say something. Like people want to hear from you, and I, I kind of laughed at him. I said, "What are you, ta- what are you talking about? Like, no, what people? Who are these people you're talking about?" He's like, "No, like this is a people are talking about this here." And that was sort of when I, I first realized that that it had actually been, you know, picked up as a story and, and it had become, you know, become sort of what it had become. And mm-hmm. um, so it was, it was fascinating for me because, you know, one of, one of my big goals in in the event and, and in track and field has been to leave leave race walking at the end of my career with it having more respect than it did when I started my career mm-hmm. um, and that just leaps and bounds further than I ever imagined possible um, just in that one day of of uh, of racing so it, it was pretty cool to, to see you know people went from thinking oh that's a stupid sport and it looks funny to thinking oh it looks funny but oh my <laughs> god does it look hard and that's that's like it does look funny, and I'm totally fine. But it's it's been great to see people now being able to uh, to you know hold that idea that okay, it can look funny and also be incredibly challenging at the same time um, has been the coolest sort of thing to see. And I, I that 50k in Rio, uh, not just in Canada, um, you know, in, in Australia as well. Um, 
uh, well, Jared Talent, who ended up finishing second in the race. Right. Um, he picked up his fourth Olympic medal and um, cemented himself as, as one of the best ever. And um, there was just there were so many different headlines um, in that race that, that created just a, it was just a fun race to be a part of. There was no Russians in the race to worry about. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was it, it was. I remember thinking during the race how good of a race it was to be a part of and it was, so it was cool to be yeah it was it was it just it was just cool to be a part of that and it was your first olympics if i'm right right it was yeah mm-hmm. now you'd done the pan am games the but, year before um i mean did that in a way prepare you for the olympics or like what other major events are there leading up to this yeah so i mean um i've done a few so world university games um which are actually they're the second largest multi-sport games um in terms of athlete size, so they have they actually have more athletes than the, the Winter Olympics. So, wow. you know, you get a really good sense of those types of things of how the village works and and you know, some of the logistics around being in a games environment. Um, Commonwealth Games in 2010 as well, um, and then uh, yeah, as you said, Pan Am Games. So you, you get lots of experience in those games types environments. And then it, in terms of the actual racing, we have a World Championships. Uh, athletics of the world championship every other year and you know to me to me the world championships or our world cup or the olympics i treat them all the same you know any opportunity to race against the best in the world um just i just revel at the opportunity um so i, I was able because of that i was able to go to the, into the olympics with relatively stress-free because I, I just saw it as another opportunity to race the guys i race against every year mm-hmm. um where they know some people can get themselves so worked up um, because the Olympics is in their mind made up to be this much bigger thing, uh, even though it's you know you're just racing the same guys you raced at the World Championships last year. Like the actual race is gonna, it's still going to be the same distance. It's still going to be you know everything about the actual race is the exact same. Um, so I think that mindset really was a, it allowed me to thrive in that environment. And the other thing that's interesting about this is that you you mentioned how like. Uh, it was originally you know, tacked on to the end of the decathlon or whatever, uh, but it's not like 50k is the only event you competed in. I mean, in Rio, you did the was it the 10k or 20k as well? Yeah, the 20k. Yeah, so they're a week apart, um, or they were a week apart at the Olympics, which was nice. It allowed a bunch of us to to do the double. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have one where you feel like? like going into Rio or World Championships or Pan Am Games or anything, is there one where you're like, this is the one where I think I have the best shot and you want to focus on that? Because I mean, how many different uh, distances are there that are competed on that level? Yeah, so Olympic and World Champs are 20 and 50K um, for the men. And so you only really get a handful of guys that will attempt the double. Um, and a lot of us do, a lot of us that do, that do attempt it are the Commonwealth guys that are all good friends and just do it because we want to beat each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's fun to fun to try to say that you had the best combined score uh, of the two races or something like that. Um, I, I definitely, almost almost anyone who does do the double uh, focuses on the 50K mm-hmm. and then uses the, 20, uses the 20K as sort of their secondary event. Um, it's a lot easier to step down in distance than it is to step up in distance. Um, the, the training, the training, Within 50k training, we do a lot of the same training the 20k guys do, uh, whereas the guys that focus on the 20k don't do nearly the uh, the volumes that, that we do to train for the 50. So it's a lot easier to come come down. Uh, but for me, in, in that 20k in Rio, it was really just about 
getting getting rid of the, some of the jitters, going through that process in the call room of understanding, okay, this is your first Olympic race. Just, you know, going through those motions and getting a sense of what it's going to be like. And it really was for me just a dress rehearsal for the 50K. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of how I treated it. And it worked out perfectly because because I was treating the 20K like a dress rehearsal, I wasn't very stressed out about it. I stayed pretty relaxed. And then I had a really good result. I finished 10th which at the time was my best ever international finish. Um, so then when the 50K came around, I was like, well, I already have a good finish. So it doesn't matter what I do in the 50K. I have nothing to be stressed about. And so I was able to stay quite relaxed for the 50K as well. So it, it ended up being sort of a, a, the, perfect, uh, the perfect opportunity to keep me sort of relaxed and, and keep my head in the game. You know, for people that aren't familiar with race walking, or maybe they only see the clips, I mean, when you get these endurance races, and you guys are out there, I mean, for the 50K, probably you know, three and a half to four hours, uh, there's probably not a lot of people who are sitting there watching it three and a half to four hours on TV, or, or not even necessarily on networks that are going to cover it. I mean, I remember waking up and watching it, and they were sh- kind of showing clips of it. This was after it had already finished. You said it started four in the morning. So first thing in the morning, I wake up and hear some clips of it. But it was such a long race like that. The most interesting thing about it is that you have a crowd. I mean, you're, you're going basically around a track. What's the distance of the track that you circle? Yeah, so because we're a judged event, um, so, you know, race walking has, we have seven judges that sort of watch our technique and can give us uh, um, uh, warnings that can result in disqualification. Uh, so race walking, just very quickly, there's two rules. Uh, you have to have one foot on the ground at all times, and um, you also have to have your front leg has to be straight at the knee uh, when it comes in contact with the ground. So the judges watch for that. And because of that, we, we aren't like the marathon, where the marathon course can be you know big 10, 10K loops or even like a point-to-point. You can start at one part of the city and end 42K across the other side of the city. Uh, the race walk needs to be on a very closed, tight loop because they need to the judges need to be able to watch you constantly. So we race on either a 1K or a 2K loop. Mm-hmm. So in Rio, the 50K was on a 2K loop um, which, from a spectator point of view, makes it an absolutely brilliant race mm-hmm. um, because you can actually watch the race unfold um, in its entirety. You can you can watch almost the entire. You see, out of that 2K, you can probably see guys for about 1,500 meters of that two-kilometer stretch. So you really get to see everything unfold instead of just having all these marathon guys come running by you once or twice Um so from that point of view, it makes it really interesting. And then, uh, so in Rio, there's a bunch of bars that were set up along the uh, along the course. So I had about twenty to thirty family and friends that were there watching, and uh, and eight o'clock in the morning, and they were just they just had a beer in their hand constantly. Um, <laughs> it was, and it's it, it's just so much fun because you just get guys get so rowdy, and and um, I I went to re- I went to London in 2012 to watch uh, my teammate compete. And I can just remember watching him in the 20K, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We were standing there, about 20 of the guys I went to university with, staring at Buckingham Palace across the street. We have a bucket full of beers, and we're watching our teammate compete at the Olympics while you know, getting drunk on the sidelines and, and, and yelling at him. Um, it, it really is a, it's a, it's a fun environment, and it really is quite, quite neat. And everyone I know that uh, has, has sort of stumbled upon race walking because they are you know acquaintances of mine um and have come and watched the race they all sort of go in with it going oh what am i what have i got myself into what am i going to watch <laughs> and they all come away with it saying that was actually really exciting um the amount of guys that i had tell me in rio that they're two must-see events um 
you know, in Rio were the men's 50K walk and, you know, one of the marathons. Mm-hmm. And it's just like to be, for these guys who are athletics, just fanatics, to say that, um, you know, the race walk is one of their favorite events to watch, I think was was pretty damn cool. I mean, having a crowd has to make the biggest difference as well. I mean, here's my moment where I can pretend like I understand Olympic athletes, but, um, (laughs) you know, doing like 5 and 10K races, you know, most of the time it's going around a park or something like that, and you might make one lap, and I'll see my wife and my baby, you know, one time during the race waving or whatever, and, you know, doing a half marathon during streets, what was most interesting to me is that people would sometimes just sit on their driveway and sit there and clap and just cheer you on. They don't even know you. I mean, it made a huge difference for me even doing something like that. So I can't imagine if you you have a crowd and you can see the same people over and over, man. It's got to make a huge boost. Do you find that your times are better, uh, like, not just because you're competing at a level like that, but is it better because you have a cheering section? I think so. I think it's, like, for me in Rio, and, and, you know, I think I saw that at Pan Am's. I think at Pan Am Games I had a huge home field advantage because Mm -hmm. I was just, uh, I kind of have an interesting race. I went off the front of the field at two kilometers into the race. It just they were just going at a pace that was too slow for me, and I knew if it came to a uh, a sprint finish, so to say, which in race walking is still like a five k. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I knew that I didn't have a chance against some of these guys because it was a, it was a twenty k. So I made the decision very early on in the race to go off the front of the field, and uh, I remember thinking afterwards, just thinking, you know, I never felt like I was alone because I just had this, you know huge relative in race walk terms would have been a couple thousand people yeah. but you know a couple thousand people around around the course there just cheering for me the whole time and it just never felt like I was by myself and I I really think that that spurred me on to, to victory and Rio felt like a home race like Rio felt exactly like uh, Toronto did because we had so many family and I had so many family and friends there and, and because the community is so close like all the Aussie parents and and, and you know cheering section was cheering for the for the Aussies and then also cheering for the Kiwis and the Canadians and all this stuff so everyone was just sort of cheering for everyone and I remember about 4k into the race 3 or 4k into the 50k race I had to actually yell at my brother um, just to, to calm down a little bit to pace himself on his screaming because it's so, you know he had there's, there's still 3 hours left <laughs> He needed, he needed to pace himself at his yelling, otherwise he wasn't going to make it to the finish. So Look, you got time was, to take was, a nap first if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, go you know, go get a coffee and come back. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it is, I think that really does help having, you know, especially for me, you know, having uh, my brother and my mom and dad there um, really was quite special. Well, I, mean, I think anybody from Canada is probably already familiar with, you know, the story of everything that happened in Rio with you in that race. Um, you know, our Australian listeners, if they've listened to our show, obviously we talked about it a lot. Uh, but for those that aren't aware, I mean, basically the infamy of this race or what made the news came down to the fact that there was a bump. And it, this is something like in track and field, if you're seeing a regular, you know, 800 uh, meter race or something like that, it, it almost doesn't seem like that big a deal. They're talking about, well, you cross the lines or whatever. But basically what happened, I guess, is that uh, the, one of the Japanese runners, he had bumped you. And is this something that's like, can you explain the rule behind this or what the issue is with that? Yeah, so I can set it up a little bit, and so um, it, it was an inter- it was interesting. That I'd gone off the front of the field. I'd gotten way too cocky. I thought I could win the race from twenty five k, and uh, I burnt my biscuit a little early. And, and by forty k, I'd had the the first three guys come flying past me. And from forty to forty five k, I kind of felt just felt was feeling sorry for myself, thinking, oh, you know, 
I had a good, I had a good effort, but those guys, they got it, they got away from me, and I, I can't catch back up. And mm. at 45k, I was like, wait, no, what are you doing? It's the Olympics, shut up, <laughs> go catch these guys. Uh, so I put my head down, and, and uh, the lactic burnt was just coursing through my legs at that point. And really, the only thing getting me through the, the mental focus that I had at that point was just on getting through one more step. I was just kept telling myself one more step one more step one more step and uh, so I did that about 4,000 times and it, at 49k so we're 49k and we're three and a half hours into the or three hours and 36 minutes into the race and um, you know we got a little bit over four minutes to go and I'd just gone onto the heels of the Japanese athlete who was in third and I'd made the decision I was like okay I'm gonna try and go right straight past him and uh, so I, I passed him and then he tried to respond and, and for some reason and and I don't think you need an explanation when you're 49 kilometers into a race for why he did this, but he decided to cross uh, from my outside to my inside and then try to pass me on the inside. Mm -hmm. And we ended up both sort of getting too close to each other because neither of us could walk in a straight line at this point. And, uh, and so we got tangled up. And from my point of view, what ended up happening was that uh, if you watch the video, um, he, we sort of get tangled up. I take about 10 more steps before I actually knees buckle mm -hmm. and it's so funny because I watched that moment and I, it, it whatever it is two seconds two and a half seconds but I can remember each process that was going through my head in that time and it feels like in my head it was it was more like two and a half minutes yeah because um, that that process of okay thinking about next step next step next step was a very internal just sort of thinking about my, what my legs were doing and, and when we bumped my uh my perception, uh, my awareness sort of became more external. I kind of like tuned back into what was going on around me. I was like, oh, what just happened? And the second I did that, my legs sort of took that as an excuse to say, hey, we don't need to work anymore. We're done. Mm. And so it, it's funny to break how I can, in my head, I can break that down and see exactly why it was that there was like 10 steps in there before my knees buckled. And it was really funny because after the race um, on social media, when so Hiroki uh, the Japanese athlete was initially disqualified for that um, but then reinstated on appeal from the Japanese mm -hmm. um, so when he was initially disqualified you know having all these messages from Japanese people on social media you know, telling me you know calling me a cheater and how I faked it and how I took a dive and all this stuff and um, even a lot of Canadians saying the same thing and it was funny because I, I should have probably been like quite upset by that but the second I saw the video, I went, oh, I can totally see why it looks like that. Mm. The, the sort of messed up way my brain works went, oh, yeah, I can totally see why people thought I was faking it. Uh, There's this moment so in it, the it, video, too, where you, I don't know if this was frustration or whatever, or if it was maybe, like you said, your knees are buckling, you're panicking. There's a moment where you throw your arms up in the air like like uh, panic or frustration or something. Well, do you remember that? Yeah, so it was more of a, I think it was a, I, I, directed my hands down as if I was sort of, I was pleading with my legs. I was like, no, like, come on legs, I need you, like, we can, we can do this. We got four and a half more minutes, just give me four and a half more minutes. I think it was it was more of a pleading with the legs, like, come, we can do this, we can get through this um, sort of feeling that was going through my head at that point. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I mean, what happened was um, when the decision was overturned, uh, the the news media, I mean, I, it's it's so hard to follow you know, all these rules and everything. But the news media was saying almost like there there was another chance to appeal it again. Like, was there an opportunity where you could say, you know, I want to fight for this bronze again? Yeah, so we could have 
um, because the initial disqualification of the Japanese athlete was done by the track referee, um, so we never actually filed an appeal in the first place. Mm. Um, so the Japanese appeal had been the first appeal, so we had right of second appeal, um, which I could have taken to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, and so basically after the race, I basically said, I'm not making any decisions. I am in no condition to make decisions. I'm going to delegate that role to somebody else for now. But once I recover and, and you know get some food in me and, and all that stuff, then I can I will come back in and, and take over the decision making process. And uh, so when I got back to the village a few hours later, we had just found out that the Japanese appeal had been successful, and I had the Canadian team lawyers and all these people telling me how to file the next appeal and all this stuff. And I just sort of said, "Look, let me go get some food. Let me think about this. I'll call you back." Uh, I went to the dining hall with my coach, and I just sort of sat down. And I said, "Look, I don't think he did anything wrong. I, you know, I don't think my any of the guys in that race think he did anything wrong. Uh, I don't want to pursue this anymore. I, I you know, I, I don't feel comfortable continuing on to fight for a medal that I don't think, you know, that I think is, would have been ill-gotten." Mm-hmm. Um, and my coach said, "Good, I agree. Let's, I, you know, I wasn't going to say it, but I agree with you. It's, it's okay. You know, call call the guys up and tell them." And, uh, so called the lawyers up and they begrudgingly accepted because um, they, they they were pretty confident they could win the case so I think they were excited excited for it but um, you know it was, it was one of those things where it just it was not worth it I, I had to think about 20, 30 years from now if I had that medal mm. you know would I look at it with the same sense of achievement and accomplishment as I would um, you know any, any other medal um, and I, I couldn't I couldn't confidently say yes to myself, and, and I think that was sort of the big, the, the big uh, point that I, that I used in my final decision. Yeah, it's funny because uh, that was what made all the news was the fact that you you chose not to do it. And it's interesting to think that maybe if you had filed that appeal, you go down as a bronze medalist, but you go down as just one of the other bronze medalists. And instead, as I said before. You come out of this, you know, maybe next to only Penny Alexiak and Andre de Grasse is the one with the most media coverage and the, the one that everybody was talking about. We, in a way, almost joked about it on the show. It's like, it's such a Canadian thing to do. Is say, no, it's okay. You take the medal, you know. But I feel like at least here in Canada, people viewed it differently. And this is why you got so much attention. It's what you said where you're like, you know, I don't believe that that cost me the race. And that's your real opinion. Like, you believe that... I could have won a bronze, but did this one bump necessarily cost me the bronze? You know, maybe not necessarily. Like, you still hold to that, that you probably were destined to be fourth place in this race one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, you just never know. I mean, Hiroki looked like he had a bunch left in the tank when, I mean, he did pass me again. So that's the, that's the other thing is people don't, you know, it wasn't that we bumped while I was passing him. We bumped while he was coming past me, so... You just you never you never know what's going to happen, and and the other the other not problem with it is the other thing is that my goodness is he a nice guy, <laughs> <laughs> you know he just like he would never like having met him and talked to him and, and gotten to know him like it just it was so abundantly clear that he would never have done anything like that on purpose, um, you know if it was you know, if it was a Russian athlete let's say different story, mm-hmm. you know completely different story. Um, but the, the telling, you know, one of the big telling things for me was in, we were in doping control uh, after the race, 
um, getting ready to do our, our urine test. And you know, it's a, it's a good environment because there's no media in there. There's just, there's just you and your coach. And um, so you, you can sort of relax a little bit. And Hiroki came up to me um, and through his translator just, and this is, this is at the point when he had been disqualified. So I'm, I'm currently sitting in third. He's currently disqualified. And he approached me and said, you know, how, how sorry he was for what had happened and, and all this stuff. And, um, you know, that, that was pretty, made it pretty clear to me that, that he hadn't done anything on purpose and, uh, it was not intentional. So mm-hmm. it made, it made it, he really helped make the decision quite easy. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing that's interesting because Canada was on the other end of this, you know, right around the same time with the men's four by 100 relay where we came yeah, that night. Yeah, it was the same, that's right. It was the same day. And it's interesting because we were on the receiving end of getting the bronze because the United States was disqualified. And I don't know, I kind of have mixed feelings on even that too because I understand what you're saying about you know, 30 years from now, uh, how are you going to feel about winning that one? You know, Would Canada have won that? I think it was Justin Gatlin whose foot crossed the lane or something like that. And would we still have won? You know, it's, it's such a technicality. You know, does that actually mean we were the third best? And in a way, I feel like maybe Canadians accepted that because Justin Gatlin is not exactly the most popular athlete <laughs> in that sport. So maybe being the nice guy does make a difference in this case. Uh, I think it also comes down to having objective or subjective rules. Um, so in, in that 4 by one relay, it's very objective. You stepped on the line. Mm-hmm. It's a rule you can't step on the line. It's very you know, clear-cut. Um, and the other thing that makes it a lot easier is that we were on the opposite end of that four years ago in London when yeah. we came third and, and were disqualified for having stepped on the line. So, um, you know, it's, that, that event is just such a crapshoot, and uh, I think that's, you know, part and parcel is, is just there's going to be teams that get disqualified. Um, it was funny that actually those last two days of athletics, Canada had, we had, well, we, we ended up getting third there, but we had four, uh, fourth for myself, fourth for Melissa Bishop, fourth for Mohammed Ahmed, fourth for our women's 4x4 four four relay. And mm-hmm. I remember joking with some of the athletes, like, we need to get, you know, Tokyo 2020, we're going to have a fourth place medal. We're going to call it the, we're going to call it the, uh, the maple medal. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to give it all our, all our, cause it's such a Canadian place to finish. Yeah, it is. It's just, you know, yeah, right, you know, c- kind of like really close, but just not quite there. Uh, so I think, yeah, come Tokyo, we're going to, we're going to have the maple medal, uh, for all our Canadian fourth place finishes. You know, all the fourth place finishes on our show during Rio, every single day, if we finish fourth, I was basically saying, hey, this is like a Canadian bronze. It, you know, it's still something. <laughs> The same thing happened even in the Winter Olympics. Um, what what I was actually uh, interested about was, like, with this media coverage and everything that happened, I'm guessing if you're, like, the top athlete in the world, you're probably going to be interviewed afterwards. Like, did you have any expectations going in that even if you did finish this and you did, you know, get a bronze, that you were going to be talking to, you know, Ron McLean or whatever uh, a day later or a few hours later? Uh, or... Are there any expectations about the media coverage you're going to get off of this? Absolutely not. Um, you know, we never... I I prepared for the three hours and 40 minutes that I was going to spend racing and, and <laughs> uh, naively never really thought had a second thought after that. Um, but I think, you know, it's... I think it's really easy um, to do... To do for me or for myself at least, I find it really easy to do media stuff because I don't really have a narrative that I'm trying to sell. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just happy to come on and and just talk about 
whatever people want to talk about. I really don't have any topics that are off limits. So I, I find it really easy when you never have to spin anything, when you never have to be pushing an agenda, um, which I find a lot of athletes try to do. Um, it doesn't. It becomes very simple and easy to do uh, media media stuff because you just have to talk about yourself, and you should know yourself pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's the evidence that there, in no way did you take a dive, too, because then you have to something to spin there. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Then you have to you know, keep your story straight and, and remember what you said to who and, and mm-hmm. all that stuff. It just becomes easier if you just sort of, yeah, are, are full-blown honesty from the get-go. So it makes it quite easy. So what's the typical training season like? Like when you're not – the Rio's done, obviously, every single year you still have a season, you're competing – uh, what's the competition season like? What's the training season like? like? What what type of months does this cover, and what type of hours a day does this take for you? Yeah, I mean it, it's a it's definitely you know it's a twelve months of the year thing. I, I, after well after Rio, I took a a few months off to sort of decompress. Um, I actually did some running, so I actually went and ran a half marathon, and, and we ran our BC cross country championships, and just did something, stayed active, doing something different uh, to have a little bit of fun. Um, but typically, our uh, our training schedule, you know, training 10, 11 months of the year, um, big, big, heavy weeks. So, like, if I'm on a training camp, uh, so for example, before Rio, when we were in St. Moritz, um, 180 to 200k a week. Um, wow. Part of that will be so Wednesday, Wednesday and Saturday, we'll usually do 40 to 45k walks in the morning, um, and then you know, sometimes another, another. 5 to 10k in the afternoon um, very similar marathon training in terms of how how you sort of schedule it so we mm-hmm. usually have one or two speed sessions where we're doing you know either like 2k intervals or or some fart licks with some you know 2 or 3k's worth of hard work and um, some longer tempo stuff where you're doing 12 to 15k's uh, a little bit a little bit harder and then everything else around that is just sort of easy easy walking to you know, and our, our easy walking is still around five minute to five ten per per kilometer. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, you're always moving at a fairly fairly brisk pace. And for the competition, like how many major events a year do you compete in for this? Yeah, so fifty k's guys will typically do one or two a year. Um, don't really see much more than that. So for this year, I have. Uh, my first, I'm doing a 50k in Mexico in uh, on March 19th, and then I will do our World Championships, which are in in London in uh, in August. So you know, two 50ks. Uh, typically, guys will maybe do around four to five 20ks in a year. So um, I think this year I have uh, only three scheduled, um, just because our World Championships. They have all the race walks on the same day, so I won't be able to do do the double like mm-hmm. I was able to do in Rio. Yeah. Um, so I've had to choose to just do the fifty. So it's a very light racing schedule. Um, similar again, similar to the marathon because you the recovery time from a fifty k is so long that you can't you know you can't be going out every week and, and racing one uh, full out. So it makes it makes every time you you step up to race quite important and quite a quite a big deal. I mean, there's so much going on, like, with your training and the events and everything. I mean, I've always had a hard time wrapping my head around, you know, how somebody does... Because, no, obviously, you're not doing this out of your own pocket. I mean, I don't think anybody can make it to the Olympics doing that. Uh, there's been so much talk, especially in Canada, over the last decade or so about the support that athletes receive. But I don't think many people even realize, you know, what that support is. So how does training get supported for an athlete like yourself? 
Yeah, you know, we, at at this point in the game, I'm very lucky to have what I have. So we have the uh, the carding system. Um, so we're um, athletics has about 65 athletes who are supported through um, uh, government athlete assistance, which is you know, 1,500 bucks a month, uh, which goes a long way to towards living and training expenses. Um, obviously, it's not enough to live off of, but it it you know it it really takes the burden off people having to work full-time jobs um, and then in addition to that we uh, I'm lucky enough to get some additional support through own the podium mm-hmm. uh, so they help cover training related expenses like uh, training camps like airfare uh, hotels um, accommodation stuff like that so um, you know I'm very lucky now at the point where I'm, I'm not having to do too much out of pocket and mm-hmm. um, I have a I have a a good sponsor and, and, and tech resources, the mining company, um, who helped support me as well. So it, it's great to have a few sponsors that believe in, you know, aligning themselves with, uh, with my passion, both, you know, on and off, off the track. I, I, I think athletes, you know, when you get, when you're given money from the government, the government does not give people money for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do feel like as, as amateur athletes in Canada, we have a duty to, to give back in some way, so I try to be very active in the community and, and um, you know go and do a lot of school talks and, and just try to use my story and, and use you know what came out of Rio for for some good to try to get some more kids into sport and and sort of learn the amazing values and life lessons that I got to learn through sport because I think it's you know it it's a sport has this amazing ability to sort of mimic uh, real life in a very safe environment where like you can kind of mess up and it doesn't really matter but you still have to have all these skills that you need in the real world like teamwork and dedication and commitment and time management and goal setting and you know all these things that pay so many dividends when you're an adult and, and in the real world um, sport kind of forces you to learn those things at a young age mm-hmm. uh, so I really think there's some, some power there so I, I'd love to get into the schools and try to you know try to convince a few kids that you know, sport's the place to be one thing that I think we have to ask all these athletes, and we're definitely going to, is the experience in Rio, because I think uh, we talk so much about the good publicity that you receive as an athlete, and you know, the same thing, obviously, for people like Andre DeGrasse or Rosie McLennan, but there seemed to be so much negative press around, not just the Canadian, but like American, every country, just around the the conditions in Rio, and you know, people looked at like situations like the color of the water in the pool and you know maybe a few stories floating around that Ryan Lochte may have may not have started and uh it almost seemed like Rio got this bad reputation but I mean I'd love to hear from somebody who was actually there what Rio was really like as far as uh the conditions that you experienced yeah I mean I think the the general consensus really was that Rio did an amazing job for the resources they had um of everyone of all the friends I had that went to London the consensus was like, you know, look, this isn't this isn't London. We can't compare mm-hmm. it to London, um, but it's where the Olympics needs to go. We need to find a way to make this model sustainable. Um, and I think it's it's it started to get out of hand. I think Rio uh, could could be you know that subtle little turning point to start scaling back on some things, start, start making everything a little bit more you know a little bit more about the sport and and the. You know, bring back some more of the Olympic values and, and cut down on this whole corporate uh, show show type of thing. And, and um, it'll be interesting to see where I mean, Tokyo is going to be astonishing. Yeah. I, you know, 
we can only imagine what what the technology that's going to be involved in Tokyo is going to be like. Um, but you know, Rio, you know, Rio for for all the scaremongering that went on in the buildup, you know, I, I think I saw one mosquito the entire time I was there, <laughs> and it was dead. Um, it, the new, media needs negative stories before there's actual events to talk about because mm-hmm. they need something to talk about. And I think once the event actually started, at least from the athlete's point of view, all that negative stuff went away. And we were just focused on uh, focused on competing and cheering on our teammates. Yeah, and I'm so glad to hear that, man. I spent 16 days straight arguing this with people when they're talking about, oh, when I heard this story, I heard this story. And I'm, the media is going to tell you stuff like that. And it also is, I mean, I love what you said about you know Rio, the bar set so high with London. But you look at like the last 20 years of the Olympics and we're in places like Sydney, Beijing, London, Vancouver. I mean, how long has it been since we've been in uh, a country that's not exactly at that level as, as far as uh, our, our richness and everything? people had these expectations like it was always going to be like this first world country and I like that we have a country like uh, or we have a city like Rio hosting it because it can be more about the sport and you also get to see something different I mean if we're always seeing London, Atlanta Vancouver I mean there's no variety there. Exactly yeah and I I think yeah we definitely need to scale it back to make it something that that can you know that these other countries can can successfully um, pull off, and I think we've made some good progress there with allowing sort of joint bids and you know starting to get multiple cities bidding for for things to help out spread the cost and uh, you know a whole a whole range of things there. So hopefully in the future we we can find a model that's more uh, sustainable and, and and really does focus more on the actual uh, a sporting side of things and and see where we can go with that. I'm hoping because we spent 16 days pitching Flin Flon Manitoba for Olympics in the future, (laughs) which I don't will ever happen (laughs) unless people's opinions change. Um, Just as we're wrapping up here, we're going to go through some quick fire questions. One of our favorite things that we did during the Rio Games was uh, the the bios that they had up on the Team Canada website. That I don't know if you were familiar with the Hi My Name Is ones that they had. Mm, Yeah, Uh, you didn't have one of those, so I mean, we might as well just do a quick fire one here if you're game. Sure. All right, so let's start here. I mean, my name is, we know your name. Uh, we'll skip that one. Uh, by the way, if anybody wants to follow along, I'm, I'm following Rosie McClendon's one here. Everybody got different questions, but there's some fun questions here. Uh, the greatest Olympian of all time is? Oh, goodness. Um, greatest Olympian of all time. Uh, this is going to be hard to quick fire. Um, oh, see, Rosie probably did these through email and got to, like, think about them. Um you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say my good friend Jared Talent, four-time Olympic race walking medalist, and the reason why I strive for for medals in my sport. Uh, the first Olympics I remember watching was uh, Sydney. If I could be any superhero, I would be uh, Batman. Nice one. All right. Uh, my favorite ice cream flavor is uh, salted caramel. If I were a baseball player, my walk-up music would be uh, 500 Miles by the Proclaimers. Oh, nice one. Um, probably the next race you're going to compete is the level you're at. Uh, the best nickname I've ever been called is? Ooh, I haven't had very many nicknames. Um, usually it's Ginger, Ginger or Dunphy. <laughs> uh, if I weren't an athlete, then I would be? A lot less happy. Oh, that's a good one. My guilty pleasure snack is? Oh, um, I have a giant chocolate uh, frog that I was just given yesterday <laughs> that is going to be demolished 
by the end of the day. So, uh, yeah, milk chocolate. Uh, I, I think you'd like Rosie's answer here, too, because she put dark chocolate with sea salt and caramel. That's much healthier than milk chocolate. <laughs> Uh, my favorite song that's lyric. That's the reason why she has two, two Olympic gold. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Switch to Rosie's diet if you want to win gold in the next Olympics. <laughs> uh, my favorite song lyric is. Oh goodness. Go back to the um, proclaimers. <laughs> go, uh, yeah, go back to 500. Go, yeah, I would walk 500 miles, and I would walk 500 more to be the man who walked a thousand miles, called out your door. The most recent TV show that I binge watched is. Oh, I've been going back and watching some Seinfeld. <laughs> We, the other host on our show, we have a project we're starting here. We're going to be going through some old TV shows. And our other host on the show has never seen Seinfeld. I'm like, how is there a person on the planet that hasn't seen Seinfeld? Yeah, I just I remember just, yeah, growing up, Dad putting that on and just not understanding it, but knowing it was good. Yeah, exactly. Now, <laughs> to, now being able to understand it and go, ah, I was right, it was good. I, I, I'm going to have a backup question for this one, but my favorite place in the world to compete is? Uh... Japan. Japan. See, I, I, I couldn't help but notice it when you look on Wikipedia and you see all the major races you've done that you did compete in Hobart in Tasmania, which is where our co-host Ben is from, um, which he endlessly mocks. Can you tell us about any experiences in competing in Hobart? Oh, my goodness. So it was the 2012 Olympic trial for the Australians. It was the hottest day on record in Hobart. We started our race in 38 degrees. It was, it was the most treacherous experience of my life. It was a, I guess it was a Saturday night. We started the race at 6 p.m. right down the main street there with all the all the pubs. And so you have the guys going into the pubs for their, you know, to start their night, and then you have a bunch of race walkers. So as you can tell, as you could probably imagine, the comments that would start to uh, to fly. Um, it was definitely a interesting race. Um, to say the least. And we had, I think, in a race of 50 people, I think 40 of them ended up dropping out because it was so hot. Oh, wow. So it was, it, was a, it was a war of attrition. It was a not definitely not a fun one to be a part of. Well, the next time that you're in Hobart, make sure to hit up our co-host, Ben Waterworth, and uh, get him into race walking with you. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll go for a walk on the main strip. Uh, final question here. Uh, my biggest fear in life is... Popular to sport. I have to say, Rosie McLennan, <laughs> the most bizarre answer for this, where she answered, train tracks and being around trains. Interesting. Have you ever met Rosie? I have. I have. And that seems seems out of character, even for Rosie. <laughs> Some type of fear of train tracks there. Um, yeah. But no. It's, I'll, have to, I'll have to keep that in my back pocket. If yeah. I, if I... Ever need to ever need to use that? The, the the most unfortunate thing is that we can't get you to draw a picture here because some of the most fun we had was that these athletes were able to draw a picture of themselves and like I remember Gavin Schmidt, the volleyball player, drew a picture of himself in a bunny suit for some reason and we had no idea why. <laughs> if you did draw a picture of yourself, what would it look like if you could describe it to us? Oh, uh, my artistic skills are so <laughs> lacking. It would probably be a stick man. I mean, a stick man these days isn't far off what I actually look like. So. <laughs> I feel like that's fairly apt. I can throw one more question out here. This is a good one, just looking through some of the other ones. My favorite sports movie is? Oh, favorite sports movie. Um, Prefontaine. Oh, that's a, that's one of those movies that most people don't even know of. Like, it's it's such a great movie and such a great story. But, I mean, it, that was that, like, about 20 years old now? Yeah, it must be, yeah. It just, yeah, just the run, any any runner will have, will have seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's... 
it's classic. One day, maybe we could be watching the Evan Dunphy story, and I wonder what would be a good name for the Evan Dunphy story. Oh, I had <laughs> a friend told me yesterday her autobiography, and I feel like this is I want to steal this. Um, so there's 27 um, single servings in a jar of Nutella, mm-hmm. and so her autobiography was going to be was going to be um, tw- was 27 servings at once, <laughs> and I feel like that was I, I love that. You know, I can. I'm gonna commandeer that and, and steal it for myself. <laughs> and you know, again, so it fits in with the high fat. I feel too, as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it was great to have you on the show here today, Evan. And uh, we're gonna have a few more uh, Canadian athletes coming up, some more Australian ones. We're gonna be on a good run here as we kill some time before uh, the 2018 Winter Olympics. But so good to have you on the show here today. And if you're ever in Winnipeg, uh, make sure to stop by, and maybe you could show some nice high-fat recipes to my wife, and we can go out for a run. Perfect. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me on, Colin. Thanks again to Evan Dunphy for being our first Canadian guest that we've had on. I obviously was huge following the Olympics, and Evan Dunphy was a story I remember Ben and Jared all the way in Australia and them watching the Australian coverage. And as they kind of admitted, Australian media being very similar to the American media, as we mentioned on the show, where very one-sided towards their own country, and even they knew of this story going in. It was a huge story during Rio, and it's great to hear it from his point of view in a long-form interview. We do have more coming up. Uh, I'm not going to give away the names just yet. Going forward, to just keep checking it periodically because we're going to have more interviews coming. Ben has a few Australians that he's lining up. I've got some more Canadian athletes. Uh, we're going to bring you as much of this as possible. And we had so much fun covering the Rio Olympics during Rio. Off the podium really just started as a side project from some of our other podcasts. And we probably have more fun doing it than any of our other shows. And we've been looking for an opportunity to bring this back and uh, we hope to have a lot of content for you. And we're going to be getting ready for the 2018 Winter Olympics as well. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to bring you some interviews leading into that. Also just me, Ben, and Jared sitting down again and talking about uh, our expectations coming to that. So lots of episodes still to come. Interviews, episodes, lots of stuff. Off the podium. Madness, insanity, hilarity. Comic geniuses like we are on all of our podcasts. Uh, but thanks again to Evan Dunphy for the interview today. And stay tuned for more Off the Podium. <laughs>